0: Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. I'm Tanya Acker. Welcome to the show, everybody. So you remember, remember the time when a a bunch of terrorists and insurrectionists tried to take over the U.S. Capitol? Well, they were spurred on by a lie uh, about the 2020 election, about the 2020 presidential election. A lie which, by the way, uh, some of the proponents uh, of that tail are now claiming that no reasonable person would have believed them. Well, a lot of people did. And some of the people who propounded, uh, who propagated that lie are now in some trouble. Senator Josh Hawley uh, was a big proponent of the big lie about the 2020 election, and there were some consequences to him. He lost a book deal, and he subsequently complained about being a victim of cancel culture. Uh, He is not the only person who has complained about being victimized by this cancel culture. Uh, There are other folks, some not famous, Uh, some people who've had uh, others dig into old tweets, things they said or did when they were kids, and they too have endured consequences. And they said, we're victims of cancel culture. Uh, I had a conversation with Robbie Suave. He is a senior editor at Reason Magazine about cancel culture. I should throw out there that uh, I think it's important that we define what this is. You know, if you look at a, I did an episode a little while ago with Yoruba Richin, who made a film about African-American women artists who were routinely canceled uh, for not conforming to the racist tropes uh, that the culture had established for them, and they were canceled. We didn't call it cancel culture then, nor did many people seem to care that much. Uh, You know, now it kind of seems like it's only that certain voices are not allowed to say whatever they want to whoever they want, that people are outraged by that. But in fairness, uh, we really need to have a conversation about how we communicate, what is fair, how we... Uh, engage opinions different than our own? Do we ever forgive people? Is that even a thing anymore? Uh, What does accountability mean? What does being canceled mean? Why do we do it? Uh, Is it fair? Is it right? What's up with these standards that we're holding each other to these days? So take a listen to my conversation with Robbie Suave. I will certainly be coming back to this issue on more than one occasion. Uh, It's a big one. Look, we're all swimming around in this human soup together. We have to do a better job of engaging one another, even when we don't necessarily like what somebody else says. So let's give it a shot. Here I am with Robbie. Hi, Robbie. Welcome to the show. Explain to me what you mean by cancel culture, because it's something that you write about a lot and that I certainly think is relevant to our ability to freely and openly engage with one another. Tell me what you mean by cancel culture.
1: Sure, uh, I should say a lot of the discussion and debate about cancel culture actually uh, is centered on what we're, how we would even define it. So that's something of a contentious issue and I think that a lot of people probably define it too broadly to include uh, just criticism of famous people that they are perfectly capable of weathering and indeed in some cases profiting from. I think of cancel culture as not just criticism of an action or criticism of something you said. Cancel culture is an attempt to inflict disproportionate harm and suffering, uh, often job loss or, or very significant loss of social status, for something that might have been bad, might have been flawed, something you said or did, but is not worthy of you suffering like a total loss of your income or your livelihood
0: you're focusing on the current trend of actually depriving somebody of their livelihood or of something of value because of what you describe as a mistake that's not so bad that it deserves the loss of a job, for instance.
1: Right. I, because, I mean, everyone believes probably that there are some ideas so beyond the pale that shouldn't be expressed and that you do, if you do express them, if you do hold them, you should be criticized for it. I don't think e- even probably the most like, oh my gosh, cancel culture is out of control, blah, blah, blah person probably thinks that there's something or someone who you wouldn't invite to speak or you wouldn't invite to your conference or something. So the debate is properly over like the range of what it is, uh, what it, where is the line. And what tends to animate me in this discussion is when it's, unintentional, or it involves someone who isn't really a combatant in the public square, like a truck driver or something who gets into a, a fight with like a road rage incident or something and, and flicks them off or makes it makes an obscene gesture. And then like that person gets fired because they, they I'm referring to a real incident where they, they got portrayed as racist, but it wasn't really a racial incident. It was just like this guy being mad and like his life is ruined because of that. And he's no one of significance. He doesn't have a podcast. He's not, he's not a columnist. Like that level of canceling to me is too punitive. And the other dynamic of it is that when it's, it's canceling in my mind specifically, when it's not just criticism of a word or deed, but criticism of the person as a human being. So it's not, you said something that was bad, but you are bad, uh, which I think is an important difference. It's a totalizing kind of phenomenon.
0: Let's go to your truck driver example. Let's pretend that truck driver X, he has a car accident with car driver Y. Truck driver X is a white man, car driver Y is a black woman. Somebody is recording the whole incident. Truck driver X gets out of the car, starts calling her all kinds of racial slurs, N-word, B-word, this and that, on and on and on. It's all recorded. Someone sends that recording to his boss and he's fired, right or wrong in your view.
1: I think that might be perfectly justified. In the scenario I was describing, the person made the OK gesture, not realizing that some people have reclassified the OK gesture as a racist white nationalist symbol. I think most people would be surprised to learn that the OK gesture is a white nationalist racist symbol.
0: But it has become that. There have been instances, right, where it has been appropriated by white nationalists. I don't disagree with you that it's yeah. also, it can also be completely innocuous.
1: I think white nationalists want it to become a sign like that so that <laughs> lots of people are doing it and they're saying, see, there's more of us than you thought, even <laughs> <Right. laughs> though most people are completely unaware.
0: I think that's a very, very fair point. Point is very well taken. And you wrote about something that happened to a young man, Carson King. He donated a bunch of money to charity. He actually went viral. Right. Anheuser-Busch uh, did a deal with him. He donated a bunch of money to charity. A journalist dug up some tweets that he made when he was 16. And the tweets reportedly referred to Black women, like me. I may have been Black mothers. I'm not a mother, but I'm a Black woman, uh, as monkeys or, or gorillas. and. He said some other insensitive things, and I think that was your language, uh, about Black victims of the Holocaust. So the tweets came to light, and Anheuser-Busch, which had done uh, some kind of deal with this kid, cut all ties with him. And he said he was really sorry. He felt badly about the tweets, but that wasn't enough. Tell me your perspective on that story.
1: The most sort of entertaining wrinkle in this whole thing was that after that, some people dug up the journalists' tweets. And of course, the journalist had, I don't remember what it was, it wasn't insensitive to the same degree, but had also said some unwise things and the journalists passed. So then that person lost their job. Twitter! <laughs> I mean, Twitter! Well, <laughs> well, that speaks to, so obviously what he said was insensitive, but I pity young people these days who have to come of age. I mean, I, I missed the cutoff. Uh, smartphones were not around when I was going through high school. Everything I said and did was not recorded on video, or my, I, I didn't transcribe every thought I'd ever had and, and put it out there for the world to see. Kids nowadays grow up in, in an environment where your worst moment will be forever immortalized. It will exist forever to come back to haunt you. And I think that's very unhealthy for young people, for society, because all young people are idiots and they do stupid things. They're
0: not all idiots to the same degree. I mean, I'm like you. I am happy that I grew up in the age uh, pre-smartphone, pre-Facebook, and my worst moments aren't there for everybody to be seen. But I'll tell you this, my niece is around Carson King's age, she could have been in school with him, and she could have been that, and I'm, again, there's no evidence that he ever said anything like this in person, but I'll just tell you, growing up as a young Black woman, I, that sort of language, it's not just insensitive. It's not just like calling me ugly or stupid. It is playing into a horrible stereotype. It is part of the reason young women who look like me grow up thinking they're not pretty, not feeling good about themselves, not valued. It plays into that, so it's a little more than insensitive. It's not just he said something not nice and had a bad day. He 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 did something really harmful.
1: No, it is very harmful. Um, but it is, to my mind, entirely characteristic of young people. Young people are little devils. They torture each other. Not all of them in in using the language of racial cruelty, but there's well, this was racial and casually sexist but also homophobia, also just picking on another kid because they look different or their glasses fit funny or something like that. I mean, kids are really awful to each other, like really awful. I, I remember that from high school. They are um, really I, awful. I think it's, it's probably a little bit better now, uh, but they're physically awful to each other. They beat each other up. I think have, have in the past had this kind of notion that, so you should be held accountable for that as a young person, but part of that is you you learn... Um, that it's wrong, and why that's wrong, and you grow as a human being, and that part of the education system is not just teaching you arithmetic and reading it and so on, is also socializing you for how adults behave. And there used to, at least, be kind of an understanding that you get a little bit of a... I mean, if you commit a crime, that's going to stay with you or something, but the dumb, mean things you did, you can be sorry for it, you can grow past it, and be forgiven. We're not forgiving people for these things anymore because they're coming back to haunt you later. And that's the part of it that it really bothers me. It's not to downplay how bad it is, but it is quite common. And every, per- maybe not every single person, some people are just angels, but virtually every adult today, if you'd had a camera on them when they were 15 years old, their life would be ruined too.
0: You don't think that all offense is created equally, do you? No. I mean, you wouldn't take issue with what I said. There's a big difference between somebody saying, you know, hey, you're a real stupid loudmouth idiot and hey, you're a, you know, horrible n-word b-word. I mean, you can see there's a difference between those two things.
1: Yes, but I think probably the principal difference is in how much harm they might have to the person who hears it. And the person who says, and I'm sure some people say it even young people in a very, very racially malicious way. Of course they there do. Probably though, there are probably some who say those things in a juvenile kind of wanting to fit in or try, like I I probably said homophobic things when I was a kid, not because I actually thought them, but to fit in With you know, I went to an all boys school and that's kind of what you did. Um, and it's bad, but there's some learning involved in that or learning what the harm is and moving past it that to me doesn't, it, it's not like, like you're some racist sociopath or something. Like I, did, I certainly those people are out there, but probably in most cases that's not that is not the motivating factor for the speech. I could be wrong, but that's my thinking. Sometimes
0: it is. Sometimes it may not be. But you do raise an interesting point about youth and forgiveness. I am among those who believe in criminal justice reform. I think that we need to have a smarter approach to incarcerating people, um, certainly young people. And an extension of that is you got to forgive somebody when they say or do something dumb and they're a kid. Well,
1: well, that's what I find so baffling, that a lot of people who are otherwise progressive on criminal justice reforms, who I I agree with for the for on many things having to do with police reform and sentencing and that kind of thing i know it's not the same to send someone to jail like there's a different kind of thing but your i mean your economic well-being your and thus your your mental well-being and your health are very much connected to your employment status in the society we live in so losing your job because someone dug up some tweet you you had 20 years ago when you were in high school right it's not the same thing as like being executed for it but it is pretty bad honestly. So it surprises me that I should think more progressives would want to apply a principle of forgiveness in those cases as well.
0: If I had to hazard a guess, I would offer this. I think it's because, or I think that part of the reason why people aren't always so inclined to be forgiving is because a lot of the times the people who are on the receiving ends or the receiving end of the harsh statement, our experiences aren't believed. You know, it's hard to accept an apology for somebody from somebody who says something racist when all the other times you talk about racism, people say it's in your head. You know, all the times when someone gets shot in the back or assaulted by a civilian who has no business being in their business, and people delve into the backgrounds of you know those people and say, Well, he kind of deserved it. People don't believe. Uh, African Americans, when we talk about our experiences. So then, when they get caught and they apologize, there's sometimes going to be some skepticism. Let's talk for a moment about this incident that took place at Tulane University. Uh, the School of Liberal Arts invited an author to come talk about a book he'd written. And in the book, he writes about white supremacists in his family. Uh, he wrote a book called Life. Of a Klansman. The author was Edward Bell. He was supposed to come speak at the school, and he was canceled. Tell us a little bit about what happened there.
1: Yeah, I think this is a pretty powerful example of the phenomenon I'm talking about. It's, I, I think most people would conclude it's quite absurd. His book is about discovering that he had an ancestor, like a great great grandpa or uncle or something, uh, who was in the KKK, who was an ardent white supremacist. And his book is about reckoning with that you know, being part of his blood uh, and his complicity in that. I think that, and that, you know, that actually really, ev- you know, he's a, prog- this is evincing a progressive worldview about how we, the legacy of, of, of racism is still with us. It's not an objective, uh, objectionable uh, to progressives.
0: He wasn't writing a book saying, here are the great white supremacists <laughs> in my <Right>. family. <laughs> Go white supremacy. It was really about how that mindset came to be and what it sustained right. itself on.
1: But you would think it was about that. I mean, you would think he was the member of the KKK for how it was received at Tulane. He was supposed to give a virtual talk. It was canceled because many students said it would be an act of racist violence. It would be offensive. It would be harmful to even let him talk in a virtual setting on this subject. He was supposed to talk in a conversation with a Tulane faculty member who is like a professor of geography and, and sociology. And again, another very ardently, like probably well farther to the left than I am. I would probably disagree with them on a lot of things. And they were going to have a conversation that again, I don't think would offend any progressive the student government again this wasn't random students the leader of the student government put out a statement saying it would not it's not only enough to cancel this event the school must apologize for its complicity in this event you know heads must roll for having done this it's cra- what like what's the point of even being a student or even being on a campus if you're not willing to expose yourself to an idea that's like maybe like this far off what you think let alone an idea that is totally contradictory to what you think um, I think it's bad.
0: In fairness, it seemed that part of the criticism also was that the students believed that the university didn't provide the same platforms for Black-centered experiences. So it wasn't just that this person was telling this story, it was that the university didn't also make room for stories about Black people in this environment. Do you think there's some fairness to that?
1: I mean. Part of the students' complaints, they, they were saying, yes, we would like to have more black speakers as well, that's fine. But they were not just saying, we would like to have more black speakers. They were very specifically saying that having this person speak at all was an act of aggression and violence and harm, and there would be traumatized people. They were characterizing it as traumatizing to a degree that uh, it's absurd. I mean, there's no other way to discuss it. You're, if you are not capable of engaging ideas by white people, that again, you, for the most part, are going are, are reflective of probably what your worldview even actually is. Like you can't even handle like that's traumatized. I mean that that actually doesn't traumatize anyone. So the people here claiming this, they were being dramatic in order to make a point. Um, I think it's very unhealthy the way some students have weaponized uh, the the language, the terminology of mental health to just describe decisions they don't like or people they don't like or things they don't like. It all speaks to their trauma and to their mental health and so on and so forth in a way that is, I I think, actually offensive. Uh, There are people who actually have mental health problems. Um, And this was clearly an example of that.
0: You believe that people are overusing the term, for instance, being triggered, now everybody's triggered by something. Is your point, and it's just—it's too much. It's gone too far.
1: Yeah. What they actually mean is, I'm offended by this, or I don't like this. In in mental health, a trigger is something that actually calls to mind your post traumatic stress, and you know, causes you to have an episode. You know, this is something that like people who served in combat suffer, or people or, or people who ha- who suffered horrific violence it could be domestic violence. It's not just for combat veterans, but. There's no way you have. A, I mean, I once spoke to a professor, a liberal arts professor, who said her entire class of mostly privileged white students all claimed at various times that they had, that they needed trigger warnings to because of their PTSD. Like she couldn't give them a B plus. That would be you know, like this is this is a real thing. It's not it's not all students, not every campus, but it is happening. And it's it the weaponization of actual mental health problems. Uh, applied to really just like benign discomfort that you have to learn to deal with to be a functioning adult.
0: What do you think about the extent to which anonymity uh, can prevail in public discourse today? I mean, you can start a blog, you can make accusations, accuse people of things, and you can kind of do it. I mean, maybe if you're a very sophisticated tech person, someone can find you and figure out who you are. But short of that, Almost anybody pretending to be anything can say whatever they want and not at all be held accountable for it. Don't you think that's problematic?
1: Well, it, it is, and actually, it can it can be, as you probably know, it, it actually it can even be legally problematic. Uh, on a lot of campuses, there have been kind of lists of sexual alleged sexual abusers on campus, speaking to you know that the kind of sexual harassment issues we were just talking about. And, th- and there was a, a couple years ago there was a very a public uh, anonymous list of uh, people in media uh, who were said to be, uh, have committed sexual harassment. And that's now being, that's a libel issue uh, because the, and, and the person who started this Google spreadsheet um, that, a, but people could just weigh in anonymously and say, well, the, you know, this person touched me at a party 10 years ago or something. Those people are suing for libel saying, you you know, you, these were untrue accusations that she had some, duty to, to vet before she added them to the spreadsheet. Uh, so I think that's really interesting because, they, because you can go around the traditional media gatekeepers. You know, it used to be that for the Washington Post to print a claim, they're going to do some fact checking. They're, you know, they're pros. They're going to make sure any iffy claim is couched in enough language where they're not going to be liable. I mean, obviously sometimes they still get sued, but that's not the case with bloggers, with social media. You can go around that. Now you can say anything you want about anyone. And actually, even some in the traditional media space have been more apt to make claims on social media. I often check, right, the reporter's Twitter feed is not as carefully curated and not as cautious <laughs> as the news article that's, that they wrote that's edited and fact-checked and, and everything else. You know, I, I wrote about the, the Covington Catholic schoolboy kids from last year— Um, who it it was wrongly portrayed in the media, what happened between that and and these activists of the Lincoln Memorial. And of course, the Washington Post got sued for that. CNN got sued for that. They all settled because there was a a kind of rush to weigh in before all the facts uh, were gathered. So we're seeing a little bit of a, from the standpoint of defamation, um, I think a pushback on the, you can say whatever kind of thing and use anonymity to get away with it.
0: The whole notion of being responsible for your facts is something that, as you say, people may now only be able to vindicate in court. Not only, but you know, with these bloggers and people being able to post so easily without any filter, there is a heightened need, I think, to make sure that folks are being accurate. So speaking of big-time publications, the New York Times had its own cancel culture incident that you wrote about. When James Bennett stepped down, uh, he used to be head of the editorial page, he made the decision to publish an op-ed by Senator Cotton that uh, got him and the paper into some trouble. And when he stepped down, that also got the paper uh, into some trouble. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, he... uh published Tom Cotton's op-ed about why there should be a more robust federal uh, send-in-the-troops kind of response to some of the uh, the violence that we're seeing in, in cities following the protests uh, over police violence. And this op-ed, I disagree with it. I don't think we should send in federal troops. I think it's a bad idea. I disagree with it on a policy sense. There were things in it that I, I think that were wrong or I would have characterized differently. I don't think they're wrong in a, like this is objectively wrong sort of, you know, they're debatable. Um, But the op-ed, the response from, not from the public so much, the response from the New York Times own staff was crazy. Staff members said that publishing this op-ed made them unsafe In their jobs. And so he shouldn't have done that because he was harming, again, using the language of to some degree emotional harm. That's the effect of this op-ed, and so he ended up having to resign, and I I guess the gist of it is that they'll never publish any opinion that conflicts with um, the, the staff again, which is a shame because the New York Times aspires to be a place where a range of ideas will be featured on their opinion pages, and you can read them and react to them and reject them if you think they're wrong. But to say that they won't even practice that anymore because some people on staff were offended strikes me, again, as bad.
0: So you described Cotton's op-ed, and I'm quoting uh, from your piece. You describe it as, quote, poorly argued, constitutionally unsound, morally questionable, and factually flawed. Uh, Let's focus on the factually flawed part. Is there a responsibility of a news outlet to make sure that before you publish an opinion, the facts that that opinion is putting forward are accurate?
1: Absolutely. But there is a range, like I said, it was flawed. I mean, there... there, there
0: you didn't say wrong, you said factually flawed. Right. So explain there for some me the difference. Things,
1: I mean, there are some things, right, where there are ev- claims about what kind of impact a policy would have there are claims that are just wrong, and then there are claims where, well, I think there's a lot of research suggesting this would be wrong, but we don't know for certain. Also in, in how we character, I mean, the, the situation on the ground is evolving, right? I think at that time, it was clear that, um, that most of the protesting was indeed peaceful protesting. Now ever you know, since this op-ed has been published, we've had weeks more of, of a lot of violence on the streets, He, I think that, you know, there's a duty to make sure your facts and figures, of course, are, are correct. If you say, you know, say the Declaration of Independence was signed on whatever day and then you have that wrong, that needs to be changed. How, you know, how many people died of the coronavirus is a fact. Do you know what I mean? There's no, there's. But you say
0: that we can interpret facts. There are some facts that some people are free to interpret differently. Right.
1: I mean, does the minimum wage cause uh, the unemployment rate to rise? That's a, some people would say that's a factual claim. Yes, it does. Some people would say that's a factual claim. No, it doesn't. In reality, there's public policy research pointing to both outcomes. So I say you can't actually say for sure either way. There are some things that are legitimate questions. There are some things that are sort of questions or how, you know, climate change is, is, I don't think it's a question. It's definitely happening. There's a little bit for how serious and how soon and all that. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a range of, of how this is wrong-ish, but not totally wrong or debatable. Um, Those kinds of things are things, I mean, I'm a writer, more of a writer than an editor. It's hard to be an editor because you have to make those kinds of calls all the time and you get in trouble when you do it wrong. I might have have drawn the line a little differently on that op-ed. I might have uh, wanted some different things there, but I don't think it is wrong to publish the opinion of a sitting, like that opinion is informing public policy behind closed doors. So wouldn't you rather know what it is have it out there than have it just, we don't know what he's thinking we, and we don't know what he's telling the administration. We don't know what's going on.
0: What else was on the editorial page that day in addition to Cotton's op-ed?
1: I'm certain there was something on there, if not that day, the day before, the day before, that I could have poked just as many holes in as they poked in this Tom Cotton op-ed. I mean, this, this one was being held to a standard that, to a much greater standard, higher standard, than other things that appear on the page only because it, it offended the staff. And I say it offended them, but they use the language of safety, which speaks to workplace safety, which is a right. So when you invoke that, you are essentially threatening your bosses to say, if you don't do something about this, it will become a legal matter, it'll become a lawsuit matter. So they knew exactly what the, in fact, there's an internal letter among the staff where they discussed, where they, they said, we are going to use the word safety because it speaks to workplace safety, which is something the employer has to address. I find that dangerous and censorious to cloak your objections in the language of safety. That's a trump card that they have to give you what you want because they'd be too fearful of a lawsuit.
0: Let's not give short shrift, though, to the claim that a call for an overwhelming show of force in certain communities might very well likely put Black people in more danger. I mean, since that op-ed, we have seen other killings of Black people. We have seen white civilians armed and shooting uh, protesters because they have taken it upon themselves uh, to be a part of that overwhelming show of force. So don't you think that both things can be true? I would
1: agree that, so all politics actually has a, right, has a violence component because politics is about the legitimate use of force. So an op-ed saying we should have a more, robust response to north korea or in the middle east that also in that that concerns the matter of violence and the impact of that could be violence on people but
0: now we're talking about violence against american citizens
1: well in that sense you're right the impact could have violence but that would be on i don't know on the citizens of these of these cities disproportionately sure on black people not on the staff of the new york times so they were saying it was a matter of their own safety, not asserting, uh, or maybe it's ambiguous, but that's how I, I, that's how I received it, that they were saying like the New York Times offices are unsafe because we had to read this thing. I think that's crazy. I do, you're right. I, I don't I don't disagree with you that the op ed might involve um, the, if it was put into action, the implication might very much harm people. Uh, but that's true of any weighty matter being not any weighty matter, but many, many significant matters being discussed on the pages if we're talking about national, federal policy.
0: And your point is that the threat of danger to these particular staffers in the manner in which they were claiming to be endangered was overstated.
1: They're saying they're unsafe in the way that the Tulane students are unsafe from this event taking place, that it it harms their mental and emotional well-being. And that is as serious as being physically compromised, and thus it's a matter of your safety. And one, you have a a legal right not to experience. That is what I'm concerned about.
0: Let's talk about another example, the curator of the San Francisco Art Museum. This is why I'm doing this episode. I'm a little bit of an art nerd. So here's the background. Uh, The curator of the San Francisco Art Museum makes a statement saying that the museum is still going to collect art from white male artists. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the gist. Uh, People are furious. He ends up resigning. Uh, There are allegations that, you know, he's a white supremacist. He leaves. He says, I'm not a white supremacist. I was just simply trying to say that we're not going to shut out white male artists. Again, I'm paraphrasing. Anyway, this guy loses his job. He's out of a job. He resigns. I think maybe the board insisted that he resign. It doesn't seem that it was entirely voluntary. So here's my reaction to that. And again, I'm only a little bit of an art nerd. I'm not anywhere near as well-versed in who's buying what Uh, as this guy certainly is, but I do know this. There is no danger whatsoever of any major museum collection not buying white guys. They are not going to liquidate their Rauschenbergs and just buy Lorna Simpson. That is never going to happen. They're not going to get rid of their Picassos. So the idea that we got to comfort people and make sure that they know that white male artists won't be disadvantaged, that to me is such an absurdity. Part of why I found it such an absurdity is I had just finished seeing this documentary um, about a woman artist, Hilma af Klint, who really was the precursor to so many modern art movements, she got no credit. Kandinsky got the credit, Mondrian got the credit, she got credit for nothing. So, specifically in the art world, we're talking about uh, a universe where really white guys got the benefit of the fact that a lot of other people weren't being discovered or shown. So for this guy to say, we're still going to do it, it kind of, it bugged me. It bugged me a little bit. And so I fired off an email to uh, the head of Reason, who's a friend, and he put me in touch with you, which is why we're doing this episode. Tell me uh, your reaction to that story.
1: So yeah, his remark came in the context of a meeting about what the museum was going to do to diversify its collection, to include more work from painters, sculptors of color, et cetera. And he said that, I think in a sort of joking way, like, yeah, don't worry, we're still gonna have art from white people, that was maybe a little tone deaf, was certainly received in an unfavorable way I think it's fine to criticize him for saying, again, Then we're going to go to the criticizing versus canceling. I think it's fine to say, you know, that remark didn't really land. That's why I didn't appreciate that, et cetera, et cetera. But he was accused in a petition of being a white supremacist. So there's, that's the difference, right? It's not, you said a thing that was kind of, again, I don't think what he said even was the end of the world in the most unfavorable light, but- You said it was not good, but it it was not that. It's you are bad. Your soul is corrupt to the guillotine for you. And I mean, the idea that, well, first of all, the idea that there's any like art curator for a museum of a liberal city who's a white supremacist (laughs) is just just (laughs) ridiculous to me. I'm sorry. but, But in fairness,
0: in fairness, I don't think the allegation was that he was a member of the Klan, but it was that... I think the fairest reading of the accusation or the fairest interpretation was that it was the sort of supremacy where you want to make sure that white, where your first priority is making sure that white people are okay and where you're less concerned about making sure that voices who've been excluded are included. I I think it was supremacy in that sense. I mean, they weren't suggesting he was off to a cross
1: burning or something like that. Right, but I I think the way they described it makes no, I mean, I, I see what you're saying. I, the way they characterize it almost gives no room for there to be a difference between cross burning and saying something slightly insensitive at a like there's a again, it's the totalizing. It's like you are perfect or you are you are fallen, and you that's are, its original sin
0: that is I, I'm with you there, hundred percent. We are not leaving any room to draw the distinction. Uh, between the person who's on the internet right now calling for folks to shoot Black people when they see them walking down the street and the guy who makes a, I think, incredibly tone-deaf, deaf-to-history-and-context remark about collecting artists. Uh, we've totalized everything. It's uh, it's all or nothing now. and And that's a little bit of a problem. So you tell me this. How do you think that we have a more robust public conversation where we hold people accountable for things. Because I tell you, you know, I'm happy to have a conversation on this show with people who don't agree with me about everything. I'm not going to have a white supremacist on the show. I'm not going to have somebody on the show who wants to explain why, you know, I am inherently less than he or she is. So we're all going to draw some boundaries. How do you think that we can draw those boundaries in a way where we're having a robust conversation, where people are participating, and where we're able to share ideas that maybe we don't like? We're not going to like everything that everybody says. What would you like to see?
1: Well, I would speak right now to the two kind of extremes in our culture, and I don't really identify myself with either of them at all, but to the right, I would say, you don't have to defend every single person who you know, you, you don't have to celebrate, maybe you defend them if it's called out, but you don't have to make them, put them on a podium as some sort of victim or martyr in every case. To the left, I would say the left fails to appreciate just how many people there are in this country who do not share all of their views uh, because they're, they're the loudest and most vocal on social media and in the elite media heights and so because they hear themselves speaking so much they come to think so then they then they attack people who don't hold their views wrongly thinking that those people are sort of some fringe, racist, white supremacist, radical minority, when really those people are most of the country. In fact, even most of Democrats, most, de- most Democrats are are religious, older, and kind of moderate and centrist. That's why Joe Biden easily won the nomination to the, to the surprise of everyone on Twitter and everyone in, in media. So there there can only be a, a more healthy uh, public conversation when you simultaneously recognize how similar we are, but how different we, we all are. And that you have to get along with people in society whom you don't always agree with, or who don't agree with a lot. Like, I think you should be able to, to like buy from a grocer who has some, like might have some problematic views, maybe he's like 80 or something, but you should be able to like, Go to a bookstore and buy a book from like a woke twenty-two-year-old who has ideas about like gender identity that I even I think are a little extreme. Like that's what we have to have to have a functioning society and not and to have a a, a discussion about ideas like you and I are having when people actually want to have a discussion of ideas and then not cancel them and when they just when they say something wrong in the course of them but then just like agree to live and let live in the mundane normal. Context.
0: We don't really do a good job of leaving each other alone when we should. No. We really don't do a good job of that. I've talked about this in other episodes. Um, you know, when I look at it from a racial context, I think we do a spectacularly bad job of it with African Americans. Uh, for some reason, it's become legitimate to get into a black person's business, whether or not they're in the park or jogging in the store or at home, it's troubling. It's troubling the extent to which we just don't draw better distinctions about when we should stay out of other folks' business.
1: Well, this pandi- the pandemic has made us so nosy. The lockdown, the, the what we've had to do, I'm, not, I'm saying it was wrong, has made us all a little stir crazy and up in each other's business because this isn't good for anyone's... mental This is actually not good for anyone's mental health. So I think we're at each other's throats a little bit more even like what happened to the New York Times is a symptom of people not being in an office together and like being able to hammer out these differences over drinks. We're all kind of just very online and very uh, gossipy and very annoyed and it's it's breeding a lot more intolerance I think
0: very very well said I well I cannot thank you enough for being on today. We don't deserve to be canceled. I think that you and I, we should be talking all the time. (laughs) Absolutely. Tell me, before you go, tell me why you became a journalist and what advice would you give to young people who want to break into the business?
1: Uh, I always wanted to be a writer. It wasn't until college when I realized I really did enjoy writing for the student paper that I wanted to make a career out of that. I would suggest to anyone interested in it, um, do work for your student paper if you're going to college and college is (laughs) still a thing in the immediate future. Uh, But don't study journalism. Every journalist will tell you not to study journalism, study economics or political science or English or history, get you know, something with some real liberal arts meat to it, um, or even or statistics or something, not journalism. Journalism is a craft, something you practice and get better at, not something you should, should learn in a classroom.
0: Great advice. Robbie Suave, senior editor at Reason Magazine. Thank you so much for being here. Promise me you'll come back. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think it's so important. You know, we just gotta do a better job talking to each other. We should talk to people, even if we don't all vote the same way. Robbie, thank you for being here.
1: Pleasure anytime. The
0: Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. Andre Lynn is my editor. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody.